Well, let's turn in our Bibles once again to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll read one verse of Scripture there. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Reading one verse of Scripture there. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're reading verse number 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse... The Bible says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. And then turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and reading verse number 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. Bible says, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen. So today we are continuing on with this series of study that we've entitled Living in Truth. And continuing with this lesson, this is our third week for what was supposed to just be lesson one. And uh, I don't know how far we'll get through this today. Um, Haven't made it very far so to this point. Um, In fact, I noticed that of the scriptures I had printed last week, I only took one verse off that list from last week. And so... I used more than one verse in teaching, but but not from my list, and so I don't know. I've still got 10 pages of notes here in front of me. I don't know how far we'll get, but I don't apologize, and I'm not going to try to rush it too much. I do feel like these things, though they are, though they are basic in many ways, I feel like they're important to us, and sometimes... You know, even the apostle who wrote the book of Hebrews, he said, we're not going to lay again the foundation. We're we're, going to move on. But before he moves on, he talks about the foundation again. And uh, that's what's got to happen sometimes. Sometimes we got to go back and examine the first things. The Lord told the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. And he said, repent, go back and do the first works over. And so even those of us that have lived for God for many years need to be reminded about our first works. And we need to go back and examine those things and make sure that we are keeping them fresh and real in our lives. Amen. And so it doesn't hurt any of us to go back and look at the basics and go back to the beginning. And that's what we've been trying to do Uh, over these last couple of weeks, and will endeavor to do yet again today. Praise God. Why don't we put our Bibles down, let's lift our hands, let's lift our voices, let's ask the Lord to help us today. Everybody, let's talk to the Lord together. Jesus, we need you, Master. God, we ask you for your help. We ask for your touch. We ask for your anointing, for your grace. We pray, O God, today that you would grant to me wisdom and strength 
I ask, O oh Lord, anoint my lips, anoint my mind, touch my heart. Help me, Lord Jesus, today, I pray. We've got to have the hand of God upon this service. Jesus, we need you in Jesus' name. Could we praise him together right now, everyone? Let's praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord. Oh, Jesus, you are good to us. You are good to us. Thank you, Master. Thank you, Master. Praise God. Praise God. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now, just so that we can try to review a little bit here today as we get started, I um, want to remind you that over the last couple of weeks we have been talking about making comparisons between the, the, the physical birth and the spiritual birth. And we've talked about what an experience it must be for that newborn baby and how uh, if there was or is some degree of understanding in the baby's mind, that it, it, it would have to be a very confusing time and a very difficult time when it draws its first breath. And, and so it is even with a spiritual birth that uh, a person comes into the church and receives the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, if, if we're not careful, we as established saints can just expect that they understand everything now, that they know everything now. We expect them to just change overnight. And I will tell you, the power of the Holy Ghost is strong enough, it can make some overnight changes. But I also want to tell you, it takes years to make an established saint. It takes years. It takes years. Hallelujah. We forget how long it took us. Now, if you were raised in an apostolic home, uh, your parents brought you up in church, you know, it wasn't quite the adjustment for you that it is for the sinner who walks in off the street. But for people who come in with no apostolic background, I understand that mindset. I understand what it's like to walk into a service for the first time and, and not be able to comprehend. Why is everybody lifting their hands? Why, why is everybody shouting amen? You know, I've, I've given my testimony before, but for those that have never heard it, before I visited an apostolic church, my entire experience with church, entire experience in all my life that I can remember. Now, my parents may have taken me when I was very small baby, I, you know, at that time when you don't have uh, memories that linger. But, but for my memory, the only times I remember is one time uh, my family attending a Methodist church on a Sunday morning because uh, some, some folks that we knew, uh, the lady was a very devout Methodist and uh, a holiness Methodist, by the way. 
Uh, and she kept inviting us and kept inviting us and kept inviting us. And my mom had actually had a little bit of experience with a Methodist church. She had a sister that was a Methodist and had gone to the Methodist church some with her sister uh, when she was younger. And so we went and visited that Methodist church one time, one time. And then one summer, I went and spent a week with some cousins in my dad's hometown. And uh, they were having a vacation Bible school at the First Baptist Church in that town. And so that week, uh, Monday through Friday evenings, I went with my cousins to vacation Bible school. That is the extent of my church experience before I visited an apostolic church. That's it. So when I walked into an apostolic church, it was a very unusual experience for me. I'd never seen anything like this. I'd never heard them sing fast songs in church. I'd never seen people get excited in church. I didn't know what this was all about. And it's easy for me to not only sympathize but empathize with a visitor that walks in and I can see the look on their face. Now, you know, some of them have seen some uh, charismatic or Pentecostal type of service maybe on TV and so some of them are not quite as shocked but, but there are many who have not. And, and so when they walk in, they have no clue what's going on. They see someone taking off, running the aisles, and you can just watch their heads spin as they watch them thinking, what is he chasing? What's going on here? Um, you know, it's a hard thing to figure out. And then they receive the Holy Ghost, and we just expect them to just be full-fledged apostolic the next time they show up. And it just doesn't work that way. In fact, you know, we're dealing with such a different generation today. And, and this, this is not excusing anything. But we do have to understand that, that the, the whole concept of commitment, is foreign to many, many people today. It really is a foreign concept. They, they, they can't comprehend the depth of commitment that we think about. You know, I've, I've, I've talked about this before, but we, we and, and I know there are, there are just causes. There are biblical reasons for divorce. I understand all that. And I certainly support everything the Bible says. And I, I understand that. And there are situations where people, uh, you've, got, you've got an innocent party and, and someone else walks out on them. I, I understand those things. But I, I'm telling you that for the most part today, people enter into marriage not as a lifelong covenant but as an act of convenience. And there's no sense of commitment to that individual. I've actually heard people say, well, yeah, you know, I, of course, they use the term I cheated. I, I, I hate that term. 
I literally hate the term cheating on my spouse or on your spouse. I, I hate it. Because cheating is what you do when you're playing a game. You know, it softens the blow. Well, I cheated on him. Now, I mean, that sounds like you had, a, you had an extra card tucked in your shirt sleeve or something. No, you were unfaithful to them. There's a, to me, Brother Goff, there's just a big difference in the way that sounds. Between saying, well, they, were un, they cheated or saying, well, they were unfaithful. When you say someone's unfaithful, that gives you the concept there should have been a commitment. I mean, you can cheat and stay in the game. But when you're unfaithful, you have broken the commitment. Right? We used to call it infidelity. Of course, the Bible just calls it adultery and or fornication. It doesn't use terms like cheating. I really think that we ought to, well, I'm off on a tangent this morning. but Hey, this is what an old man does. Hallelujah. I will tell you this. I don't feel a day over 62. Praise God. Not yet. Tomorrow I will, but right now I don't. Um, so, so I really think that we need to understand. We've got to get this sense of commitment. But, but I was saying that to say we need to understand that they don't understand commitment. And so they come in, they receive the Holy Ghost, and we don't see them the next service. And they, well, what happened to them? And honestly, for many, for many saints... It's almost a depression that settles in on us. Well, I thought they were going to be faithful. Well, they may be, but they need to learn. They don't know that they should be in church every time the doors are open. Hey, let's faith, face it. we got a few long-time saints that don't seem to know that either. So why should we expect somebody to come in, receive the Holy Ghost, and immediately they just line up to everything, they're here, they don't ever miss a service. Now, I thank God when that does happen. But we shouldn't get depressed when it doesn't. And nor should we just give up on them like, well, you know, they came in and had their little one-night fling with Jesus, and so we'll never see them again. No. We keep working with them. We keep encouraging them. We keep praying for them. Until they learn about commitment. Praise God. We, we spent some time in the last lesson talking about being born again. We talked about Nicodemus. In fact, we started that two weeks ago. Talking about Nicodemus and him having his religious experience and coming to the Lord. And the Lord um, really just rocking Nicodemus' world by saying to him, your religion's not enough. 
You need to be born again. You've got to have a new birth. The problem is our first birth, we're born in the lineage of Adam, a sinner. And Adam passed those sinful genes on to us. And so every one of us are born in sin, shapen in iniquity. Every one of us. The sin factor is present in us. It's here. And so the only way to combat that, the only way to correct that, is to be born another time. The first birth was corrupt. And so there's got to be a second birth. Right? Right? Got to be a second birth. Amen. The, the first birth is a natural process. But the second birth is a spiritual process. And we, we closed out our lesson last week talking about how that it is so spiritual a process that we don't even choose God. He chooses us. He affords us this great privilege and honor. And therefore there are no unwanted children in God's family. Every person, every person, that ever feels a call from God to come to Him has been chosen by God and should therefore feel special in God's eyes. Now, I'll just throw this out there and it um, doesn't look like we're going to do it in tonight's Face the Truth Live. By the way, it's a good time for a shameless plug. Um, Tonight after service, we're going to do Face the Truth Live, and, and we've got things set up, and it'll be much quicker, and we're going to go live at 8.30 p.m., um, and so we'll be serving after church, but uh, we're going to be dealing with a very interesting subject. Um, I've, I've, I've had a lot of questions submitted, and we may get to some other questions before the night is out, but we will have a one-hour timer set. They'll be counting it down for me. It'll be right there in front of my eyes. I'll be able to see when I'm talking too long. But in the event that we finish one question and we've still got some time, then I've got some other questions in reserve that we'll try to get to. And if we don't get to them this month, try to get to them next month. But, but tonight we're going to talk about what is, I think, a very interesting subject, and I'm very excited about it, and that is the question of progressive revelation. Now, that may not mean much to, to many of you, but... You know, when we start trying to show the doctrine of the oneness to a Trinitarian, some of the Trinitarian scholars, their way around a lot of the verses that we use is they say, well, God progressively revealed that He is a Trinity. So you, whatever scripture you want to take them to in the Old Testament, they say, yeah, but God had not yet revealed He was a Trinity in the Old Testament. He didn't do that until the New Testament. This is a progressive revelation. So for, for 4,000 years of man's history, God kept this a secret. 
and didn't reveal the secret till we get to the New Testament. Well, I'm going to deal with that tonight. And the ramifications of that. And so I'm really excited about it. It's, of course, it's going to give me a chance to get into the oneness a little bit too. And you know, that's always my candy stick. And I, I always enjoy dealing with that. And so we'll, we'll throw all that in. But um, I started to say that you should feel special. I did say you should feel special if God chose you. And I started to say one of the questions that was submitted that I really want to get to. And uh, if I don't get to it tonight, then most likely next month I will. And that is the whole question of, of predestination. Because I don't want anybody to think by me saying that God calls us into the family, that that means certain of us are predestined to be saved. There is a scriptural doctrine of predestination, believe it or not. There is a scriptural doctrine of predestination, but... Well, I'm afraid I'm really throwing confusion out there. So now I'm really going to be forced to answer this question. But we need to know that the, the, the doctrine that is popular concerning predestination is not the biblical doctrine of predestination. There is a biblical doctrine of predestination. But um, we, 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 we'll talk about it. Um, It's a good question. And now a lot of you got that question. Now a lot of you are going to say, come on, answer it, answer it. I will, I will. But not right now. I got another lesson to teach right now, all right? So, so you just bear with me. We'll, we'll get to that one. Just don't be confused and just know that we'll get to it, all right? Um, but, I, but I do want you to know that the fact that God draws you, he doesn't have to draw you. He doesn't have to choose you. He's not obligated to do that. But he does it. Because he loves you. It's not just that he loved you, past tense. But he loves you, present tense. In fact, I heard a Jewish rabbi say it this way. He said, really what God is saying to us is, you I love, not I love you. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is where the emphasis is placed. And he said God puts his emphasis on us. You I love. Hallelujah. That ought to really make us feel special. To think that the God of the universe cares about us. Well, if I'm not careful, I'll get right back into that. That's where we ended up last Sunday night. It's where I ended up Tuesday night. We're going to be right back there again today if I'm not careful. i got to move on. Praise God. So, let's talk about this whole new birth process. Now, here's the thing. We're born the first time. It's a natural birth. It, is, it involves corruption. It, it puts corruption in us. And the only way now that we can be born again is that old man, that first man, is going to have to die. We can't be born a second time until the one that was born the first time dies. Now we're not talking about a physical death. 
talking about a spiritual death. That spiritual death, of course, is brought about through repentance. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God now. Everyone say now. now. Everyone say now. now. Right now, God commands all men. I want you to say all men. Now say everywhere, everywhere. to repent, right? So, so understand the key words of this. Now, right now, God commands everybody, everywhere. There's no exception. The command extends to everybody. So that ought to kind of give you a little bit of a clue as to where I stand on predestination because... Why would God command people to repent who don't have any hope of being saved? Right? But he commands all men everywhere to repent. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is not willing. There's another good verse for predestination. He's not willing that any should perish. God does not predetermine that some people are going to hell. He's not willing that any should perish. But he's willing that all come to repentance. We have got to die out to the old nature before we can be born again. Now look, I told you John 3 and 5 explains to us what the new birth is. We talked about that last week. Jesus said, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus said, how does that happen? And Jesus said, well, it happens when you're born of water and born of the Spirit. Right? That's the way you're born again. But do you notice that he doesn't say anything about repentance in there? Why doesn't he say anything about repentance in explaining the new birth? Because new birth cannot be accomplished unless you have repented. Jesus wasn't telling Nicodemus the the plan of salvation. He was telling Nicodemus the only, he was answering the question, the only way you can be born again is to be born of water and born of the Spirit. But you see, that first birth has got to be dissolved. It's got to be done away with. And the only way that can happen is if you die. So it's got to be preceded by death. It's like, you know, having on a, a job application, it says you must have a bachelor's degree. No, let me back it up. Let's say that the job application says you need a master's degree. All right, need a master's degree in electronics. Or electrical engineering. You need a master's degree in electrical engineering. All right. Now, now look, if that's the requirement, 
you cannot get this job without a master's degree in electrical engineering. It's understood you don't get a master's until after you've gotten a bachelor's. That's the process. Now, they don't have to say you've got to have a bachelor's and a master's. Is everybody with me? And that's what Jesus is doing. Just because he doesn't say repent in John 3 and 5 doesn't mean we don't have to do it. In fact, his entire ministry was spent preaching repent. He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. In fact, Luke tells us he said that twice in a row. So, so don't think that Jesus didn't want us to repent. He spent his time telling us to repent. Now he's saying to Nicodemus, here's the requirements for entry into heaven. Here's the entry requirements. You've got to be born of water and you've got to be born of the Spirit. But we understand that before you can do either of those, you've got to repent. John the Baptist had preached a message of repentance. And he was preparing the way for the Messiah. How did he prepare the way for the Messiah? By preaching repent. How are we going to prepare the way for the Messiah to take up residence in our heart? we got to repent. There is no other way to make preparation for the coming of the Spirit except through repentance. Praise God. It's necessary that people repent. And repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. I, I don't have time to teach a whole lesson on repentance. But, but repentance is recognizing your sin from God's point of view. And that causing you to feel what the Bible calls a godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow worketh repentance. So when you see that your sin is destroying your soul and you become sorry for the fact that you have sinned against God, then that brings you to a place where you can repent. At that point, you do ask for forgiveness. And if you really are sorry for it, you know, I often use this example... If, 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 I'm, if I'm walking by and I swing my hand and I slap somebody in the face, say, oh, I'm sorry. Well, they might forgive me. But if I turn around and walk by them and swing my hand and slap them again, and then I turn around and walk by and swing my hand, oh, I'm sorry, it's an accident. No, you keep doing it, you're not sorry. And that's the way it is with our sin. We can't come to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I'm doing thus and so. And then turn around and do the very same thing again and again and again and again. We're not sorry. When you get a godly sorrow for that sin, you determine in your heart that with God's help, I'm going to quit doing that. And until you have that kind of determination to change your life, you haven't really reached a place of godly sorrow. 
Now, I will tell you, most times, godly sorrow is accompanied by tears. I can't say that all the time, but I would say the majority of the time. A real godly sorrow will bring you to tears. I'll also say this, because repentance is a necessary thing before new birth can take place. Let let me just tell you this, that many times when somebody's seeking the Holy Ghost, I've found, personally, I've found, it's usually one of really three things. Number one, they don't have faith. They don't believe God's going to do it. Or at least they don't believe He's going to do it now. And you've got to get a now faith to receive the Holy Ghost. You've got to believe God's going to do it now. And part of that really is getting an attitude like Jacob had when Jacob said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Jacob didn't say, well, now, Lord, you know, sometime when you'd like to, look me up. Put a blessing on me somewhere down. No, because he's about to see his, his murderous brother the next day. And he's saying, God, I, I can't face Esau if you don't help me here. I'm not letting go until I get what I'm asking for. And there's got to be that kind of a now faith and that kind of a Jacob-like persistence that says, I am here until you fill me. Well, got to be a faith and, and, and that's one of the biggest drawbacks to people um, not receiving the Holy Ghost is a lack of faith. The second thing is a lack of true repentance. That there's something in their heart mind or spirit that they're not willing to let go of. They're not Willing to give to God. Not willing to change. And so they haven't fully repented. Now, let me tell you. Sometimes what people don't let go of is their own hurt. And therefore they can't forgive someone else. Because they're hanging on to their own hurt. And the only way you can really repent, you're going to have to let go of that, turn it over to God. I was listening to someone recently explain, and I haven't had a chance to look into this, so I'm not going to state it as a fact, all right? I'm passing it on as food for thought, and you can look it up and try to figure it out in the meantime. But they were talking about... When, when Jesus was on the cross and he's, he, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They said, and like I said, I haven't had a chance. I meant to check this out. Didn't have it in my notes. Didn't know I was going here. I would have. I usually try to verify all these things before I bring them up. But I'm telling you clearly that I may be wrong on this. It's just what somebody else said, which is a dangerous thing to do. But. But they said that when you look at the original, it doesn't say that Jesus said, 
Father, forgive them. But that he was saying that in the original, it's a continual thing. That it was more than one time. That he repeatedly from the cross asked that those who were abusing and mocking him be forgiven. Now, I, I want to look into it. I want to know for sure. But my point is this. Sometimes we've got to learn to do the same thing. And we've got to learn that part of our own forgiveness comes in letting go of the hurt that we feel. And, and asking God to forgive those that have hurt us. Praying for them. Not praying, God, get them. You see what they did to me, God, zap them. Fry them now. That's the way a lot of us pray for those that hurt us, right? Ah, let's be honest, let's be honest. We may not say it, but some of us think it. But we really need to learn to pray for those who despitefully use us. Isn't that what the scripture says? To love our enemies. To pray for them that despitefully use us. That's what the scripture teaches. And so sometimes, sometimes there's either something that they're not letting go of something they're not giving up to God or maybe there's something that they're refusing to forgive and Jesus made it clear that if we don't forgive we can't be forgiven and so our old man is never going to die until we learn to forgive well so this death is necessary let's, I'm, I'm skipping I, I, let, let, let's catch this verse Isaiah 55 verse 7 let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is my point, that, that real repentance involves forsaking sin. Not just asking for forgiveness of the sin, but walking away from it. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. Jesus said, if you come to the altar and realize you've got something against your brother, what are you supposed to do? Leave the altar and do what? Go get it right. Make it right. This is all a part of what real repentance is. And sometimes we older saints need to be reminded of this too. I want to tell you why another reason why repentance is not listed in the new birth. John 3, 5, in that verse. Because repentance is not a one-time thing. Being born of water is a one-time thing. Now, I say that if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, then that doesn't even count. You weren't born of water. Until you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you've not been born of water. 
Now, the renewing of the Holy Ghost is an ongoing thing, but being born of the Spirit is a one-time thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're renewed in the Holy Ghost. But to be born of the Spirit is a one-time experience. Being born of water is a one-time experience. Being born of the Spirit is a one-time experience. But repentance is something that has to take place before and after. Because we're not instantly made perfect. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be failures. There's going to be faults. There are going to be things that we do and say that we're going to regret. And so we have to learn to go back to God in repentance. I've said it before. I say it again. It is, it is a part of my daily prayer every day. It is not just meaningless repetition to me. I say it and I mean it every day when I say to God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Every day. Every day. I pray for God to forgive me. Lord, if I've thought something that was wrong, if I've said something that was wrong, if I've done something that's wrong, purify me, cleanse me. Can I tell you, even standing here on the platform, I don't mind telling you, before I come to the pulpit, I like to pray, God, if there's anything that I haven't yet gotten out, please don't let me stand behind that sacred desk with anything in my heart. I want to be clean in God's sight. Repentance is something that ought to happen every day. All right. But that initial time of real repentance is when we die. So that the new birth can take place. Now after there is a death of our old lives, what happens after death? There needs to be a burial. Right? Is anybody out there? Are these spots on my glasses today? After a death, there needs to be a burial. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Yeah, and we, we can talk more about that, being risen with him in just a few moments. But all of this is the process of the new birth. In fact, I, I didn't list this in my notes, but you go to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul said, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also believed, and by which you are saved, wherein you stand. And he said, the gospel is this. Christ died. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day. That's the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection. So it shouldn't surprise us that the plan of salvation involves the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection. Not of Christ. He's already done that. 
but we are crucified with him through repentance. Now we are buried with him in baptism. Now, let me just remind you. Contrary to the way it's done in many churches today, baptism was not expressed as an invitation. Think about it for a moment. There's no invitation that I can read anywhere in the scripture where the apostles ever said, if you'd like to be baptized, you can. Now, I try to be sweet and kind, and that's kind of the approach I take, but i got to be honest with you, that's not really the apostolic approach. Acts chapter 10, verse 48 says what? And he commanded and them. And he invited them. No, 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 there's no invitation here. There's a command. But see, today, help me, Jesus. We have such a world of snowflakes. They just have a complete meltdown over anything. I was talking to a pastor last night, and he said, he, 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 just, he said, I'm just beside myself. I've never seen, and, and he's been pastoring this church for many years, but he said, I've never seen people get so easily offended at anything. He said, they just get offended at anything anymore. He said, I've had people literally leave the church over some silly little statement He said, he said I, was, I was teaching one night, and he said, I got to thinking, and he said, I, you know, he said, I, I let him know. He said, my, my grandpa used to make crazy statements. His grandpa had pastored that church before him. He said, my grandpa used, and, and there were people that were still there that his grandpa had pastored. And so some of you know who I'm talking about now. But, but anyhow, he's, he said, my grandpa would get up and say things like, well, I'm not getting on an airplane because Jesus said, lo, I am with you. You know, he was joking. It was obviously a joke. And he said, you all would laugh. So he said, if my grandpa can say that, I can say this. When it came time to offer animals for sacrifice, he only used the clean ones. He said he didn't want to be around the stinky ones. He wanted the ones that were clean. He said, if we want God to use us, we need to be clean. Go take a bath. And he said, I had people get offended. That I'm telling them they need to bathe and use deodorant. Well, can I tell you, if that offends you, I'm just going to be honest with you today. I'm offended by your body odor. Well, if I can't keep you awake by preaching, I'll try to keep you awake by laughing. All right, well... We'll, we'll work at this some way or other. But, but it, it's a fact. People just get so offended these days that anything and everything is offensive. It's offensive. It's offensive. Right. But the, the apostles obviously weren't, weren't concerned about offending someone. 
He commanded them. I'm going to say commanded. That, that's, that's a pretty strong term. He commanded them. Now, that's not the only time. Now, this word commanded may have may not have been used in other instances, but let's really think about this verse that we all know and love and appreciate. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Let's think about this verse for just a minute. Then Peter said unto them, Repent. I'd like to invite you, repent, and I'd like to invite you. There's no invitation here, is there? What did he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Whether we like it or not, that is a command. He commanded them to repent. He commanded them to be baptized. And notice how he breaks this up. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He didn't say, and receive it. This is not a command because he can't command that. That's between you and God. But he can tell you, you need to. And he can tell you that it's promised to you. But repentance and baptism were commands. Because see, you can't leave this dead body unattended. It must be dealt with. It's got to be buried. God's not a taxidermist. He doesn't take our old man and stuff it and put it on display. He wants it buried. And we bury it through baptism. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Now this is Paul giving his testimony of what Ananias said to him. Now remember... Remember, Ananias is talking at this point to a man named Saul of Tarsus, a man who's been going around putting people in prison. You want to talk about the need to walk softly? Right? He's looking at the guy that's got in his possession authority to have you imprisoned. But what does Ananias say to him? And now why tarriest thou? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be Arise, baptized. Get up and get baptized. And wash away thy sins. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Woo. He's talking to a religious man. A devoutly religious man. A man who kept the law. In fact, he identified himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That means he was the most conservative, conservative out there. He was the strictest of the strict. And yet Ananias said, you're a sinner. Ouch. And Ananias didn't ask him and didn't invite him. He just said, get up and get baptized and wash those sins away. Pretty strong. Pretty direct. 
But that's the way it was done. Well, see, this is the only way we can really have a good conscience toward God. That's what Peter tells us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, uh-huh. not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And then he says, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. In other words, we're not washing dirt off of your body. But what we are doing is we are washing your conscience. This is the only way you can have a clear conscience before God. Is when you're baptized in Jesus' name. Because at that point, it doesn't matter what's on your record. At the moment you're baptized in Jesus' name, your entire record is expunged. It's cleared. It's eradicated. What other big word can I use? Your sins are washed away. Well, that ought to get somebody excited. I I mean, we ought to be thankful that we can go to the water and get a brand new start. Now, we don't have to keep going back to the water. But see what happens in the water, and this is why it has to be done in Jesus' name, is because... By being baptized in Jesus' name, that the authority of that name is conferred upon you. You now have access to use that name. You can now repent and get your sins forgiven again without having to go back to the waters of baptism. You've been given that authority. Because you were baptized in His name. When you're only baptized saying Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you don't have the authority. All right, So, now here's the deal. We're, we're trying to arrive at a new birth, right? Thank you, Brother Stephen. How about the rest of you? We're trying to arrive at a new birth, right? Okay, all right. Just making sure we're all on the same page. So we're trying to get to a new birth here. And so we have taken the first birth. The old man that was a result of that first natural birth, and we've crucified him. Then we've buried him. So what do we got to do now? There's got to be some kind of a resurrection. Because now that man that's been walking in your shoes needs to live a new life. And this is where being born of the Spirit comes in. This is the resurrection. Romans chapter 6 verses 4 through 8. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead. So we were buried and now just like Christ was raised from the dead. By the glory of the the Father. By the glory of the Father. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. I'm telling you that's how the glory of the Father comes to us is through the power of the Spirit. God the Father is a Spirit. His glory comes to us through the power of the Spirit. And so that same glory comes and allows us to now walk in newness of life. Read. 
For if we have been planted together if in we the were likeness in the likeness of his of death, his death we also we also in the likeness in the likeness of his resurrection. Of his resurrection. Knowing this, knowing this, that our old man is crucified that old with man's him, crucified, that the body of the sin body of might sin be destroyed, destroyed, that henceforth we so should that not we're serve not living sin. under sin anymore. For he that is dead is freed from sin. See, look, I don't care how much of an addict you are. When you're dead, those cravings aren't bothering you. No, sir. You might smoke six packs a day. But when you're laying in that coffin, they can put packages of cigarettes all around you, and you'll never pick one up. You're dead. You know what died with that death? Your cravings. Alcoholic, drug addict. When you're dead, your cravings die too. Praise God. And so when you die in repentance, you're free from the cravings of sin. And that's where you find the power of the Holy Ghost kicking in, is, is all of a sudden you realize, I don't have to go back to those things. I don't have to start doing those things again. Verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ. If we be dead with Christ. We believe that we shall also live with him. We will live with Christ. All right. So after we've been buried with Christ in baptism, we rise to walk in newness of life. And how does this happen? It happens because we receive power from on high. We can't do it by our own earthly power. We tried that once and had to kill that man. Do you understand what I'm saying? We had to kill the old man. So whatever abilities the old man had, we can't rely on those abilities now to start pleasing God. We need a new power that comes to us not through our natural birth, but it comes to us from on high. That's exactly what was promised in Luke 24 verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. I send the promise you. of my Father upon you. But tarry ye but in, the city of Jerusalem. in the city of Jerusalem. Until ye be endued. Until you be endued with power with from on high. Power. Endued with power. Endued with power from on high. What is that power from on high? What is that power? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive, you power. Shall receive power. After that After the Holy the Ghost, is, Holy come Ghost upon you. is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses upon unto yes. me in both Jerusalem and all right, Judea right, and Samaria. Right, 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 part right, of the right. And so here's what we understand. The only way we can really walk in newness of life is through that birth of the Spirit. Receiving that power that comes from on high. That's what allows us to overcome the cravings of the flesh. That's what allows us to begin a new lifestyle. To start living differently, thinking differently, talking differently, acting differently, dressing differently. Everything comes because we now have a new source of power we've never had before. Praise God. See, that's why it's called a new birth. The old birth is done away. 
And now everything is new. Look, I know this is contrary to what a lot of Christian denominations teach. It blows, it blows their minds to hear something like what I'm about to say. But, but I want you to understand, men like Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, those men were the Lord's closest disciples. They walked with him. They heard his teachings. They saw his miracles. In some cases, participated in the miracles. Right? But I submit to you, they weren't saved during that time. Well, let me say it this way. They were not born again. I don't want to say they weren't saved. Because had they died at that moment, they were still under the law. And they would have been judged according to the law. So I don't want to say they weren't saved. They weren't born again. And that's why you find Peter warming his hands around the fire. And somebody says, hey, didn't I see you with him? Oh, no, no, no. I don't know him. Somebody else comes by and says, oh, I know you. You're one of his disciples. No, 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 you got it all wrong. I'm not. Third person comes by and says, "Eh, I recognize you from somewhere. You're one of his followers, aren't you? And to prove that he's not, read it, it's in your Bible. To prove that he's not, he starts cursing. I'm talking about the spokesman of Pentecost. Right? He's denying the Lord and he's out here cussing. Because I tell you, he's not been born again. But he receives the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And 34 verses later, he's telling everyone else how to be saved. In fact, just 10 verses later, he's standing up in front of a whole crowd of multitudes. You don't have to go very far back before Acts chapter 2 to find him hiding and cussing and denying the Lord. But with just a few turns of the pages, he's now boldly standing in front of an entire multitude. I submit to you, I can't prove this scripturally, but I believe, Brother Goff, that standing in that crowd were members of the Sanhedrin. This is a Jewish feast day. They all came together in Jerusalem. And these members of the Sanhedrin considered themselves the real holy guys. They kept the law. And the law commanded them to be there. They were in that crowd. Now, how many of them accepted the message? I don't know. But I believe they were there. 
The very guys Peter had been trying to avoid. It was the Sanhedrin that really condemned Jesus to death. Now it ultimately had to come from the mouth of Pontius Pilate. Because the Jews didn't have the authority to put a man to death. Except they did have authority. They were granted authority to put a man to death if he was a Gentile and he crossed a line in the temple courtyard. They had authority. They were given authority by the Romans to put him to death under those circumstances. But other than that, and Jesus was not a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. So they had no authority to put another Jew to death. They had to get Pilate to do that for them. All right. But remember, it was them that pushed Pontius Pilate to do this. He didn't want to. But he saw an uprising on his hands if he didn't. And that's why he washed his hands of it and said, His blood be upon you. He didn't want to do it. He said, I find no fault in this man. He did not want to put Jesus to death. It was the Sanhedrin. It was the high priest. It was the religious Jews that had condemned Jesus to death. And we're only 50 days away. We're only a month and a half away from when they put Jesus to death. And yet, within a matter of weeks, Peter goes from this guy that is scared, so scared he's willing to curse, to a guy standing up in front of the very people he was afraid of and telling them, you need to repent of your sins. How did that transformation take place? Now, my religious friends would say, well, because of the resurrection, and so it just kind of gave Peter a boldness. No, 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 no. I'm sure the resurrection inspired Peter, but it didn't change his nature. It was his own resurrection. That's what changed Peter. It's when Peter got the power from on high. Don't you remember that Jesus looked at him one day and said to him, while well, this, is, this is before Pentecost, Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. When you're what? When you're what? You mean this man that's been walking with the Lord, sitting at his feet, watching his miracles, participating in his miracles, he's not converted yet? You're right, he's not converted. Because conversion means a change into something else. I have to deal with this all the time. My trips overseas, you go into another country, you have to convert the U.S. dollar to their currency. That means to change it from one thing to another. Right? 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 That's what conversion is. It's a change. And Jesus said, Peter, when you're changed, start helping your brothers. 
And I'm telling you, when conversion came in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, Peter didn't waste any time. There was a transformation that took place in these men. Not a transformation that came through a knowledge of an event, but a transformation that took place because of an experience they had. They received power from on high. And I am here to tell you that's what's going to change our lives. And can I say even to the established saint, look, if we're not careful, that old man starts coming back to life. That old nature starts cropping up again. You know what we got to do? We got to go back and chop it off again. But that's not enough. We need that resurrection power again. Because if the old man's starting to live, that means the spiritual man, the new man, starting to die. They cannot coincide. They cannot coexist. The minute the old man is alive, the new man is dead. So you know what we need? We start realizing, boy, I'm getting short-tempered again. Boy, I'm getting really mouthy again. Boy, I'm getting... My thoughts are going places they shouldn't go. I'm starting to desire things I shouldn't desire. You know what that means? It means my spiritual man's dying. I need another resurrection. That's what it means. I need to go back and have another experience. I need to begin with some repentance and make sure all that dies. And then I need the Lord to come and fill me up again. I need that resurrection experience again. I need more power from on high. Look, this is not just to new converts. This is to every one of us. Life has a way of dragging us back. Pulling us back to our old habits. Pulling us back to our old lifestyles. Praise God. Well, I'm not going to get done today, but I have made a little bit more progress. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Old things are dead. Right? Right? You know what passing away means? Old things died. Behold, all things are become new. Everything now is new. There's a new man walking in my shoes. Well, praise God. The old things were the sins of the old life. The carnal desires of the old life. The new things are the results of that born again life. Someone that's been filled with the Spirit starts desiring things that please God. And you know what? There is a promise in the scripture. If you'll delight yourself in the Lord, he'll 
give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that what the Bible says? Now, now please, again, don't misunderstand that verse of Scripture. I've, I've heard people misuse it. The Bible says he'll give me the desires of my heart. Well, yes, it says that, but there's a condition on it. The condition is you've got to delight yourself in the Lord. So if your desire is a new Mercedes, then that's what you're delighting in. And God does not promise to give you that desire. If your desire is to become a billionaire, that's what you're delighting in. And God has not promised to give you that desire. But if you delight yourself in the Lord, then you're going to desire the things of God. And He'll give you the desire of your heart. Hallelujah. And that really is what this resurrection is all about. And look, I, I, I don't have time to get into this or we won't get any farther today. In fact, based on the time, I think I'm going to try to just maybe do one more verse is about all I'm going to try to do. And then we're going to close this down. But understand that what has to happen is this, this change in our desires from desiring the things of the world to desiring the things that are pleasing to God. Right? It's, it's a matter of, of changing our entire thought process and our entire perspective. That's not something that can be done by our own human abilities. But this is where the power of the Spirit comes in. That the Spirit of God starts changing what we desire this is what I, I really don't have time to get into all of this, but, but we need to understand that's really what the New Covenant or New Testament is all about. Did you know that? God had a covenant with His people. And that covenant was the law. It was keeping the law. It was... It was a law that was based on the Ten Commandments. This was really the birth of the nation of Israel. The giving of the Ten Commandments was the birth of the nation of Israel. As a nation, they now have national laws. They have a national cohesiveness. And the covenant was the law. But do you know what God said? I'm going to make a new covenant. And here's what he said about the new covenant. Not that I'm going to just destroy the law, but he said, it's not going to be written on tables of stone. So in other words, really, it's not going to change its principle. It's just going to change its origination. Right now, the old covenant, he was saying, originates from these tables of stone. 
And you see this list, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. And there's this whole list of thou shalt and thou shalt not. And that's where it originates. And you got to keep this covenant. But God said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, forget about those tables of stone. In fact, isn't it interesting that before Jesus ever came into the world, the Ark of the Covenant, does anybody know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Do, do, do you know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, the last time that, that they had it. Um, now, originally, well, originally there was nothing in it, but, but then... They were commanded to put something in, and then later they were commanded to put something else in, and then later they were commanded to put something else in. There were three things at one time that were in the ark. But when the Philistines captured it, we don't really know what happened to a couple of those things, but when Israel got it back, there was only one thing in it. And so for many years, there was only one thing in the ark of the covenant, and do you know what that was? It was the tablets of stone. It was the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God. And they were inside the Ark of the Covenant. But somewhere along the line before Jesus ever comes on the scene, the Ark of the Covenant is no more. Nobody knows where it went. Nobody knows where it is. I just wonder if that's not in part because... God doesn't want us looking at the tables of stone anymore. Now, the law hasn't changed. You still shouldn't lie. You still shouldn't covet. You still shouldn't kill. Kill. You still shouldn't steal. Right? But now, it's not originating from those tables of stone it's coming from our heart. That's why the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit or Spirit of Holiness is given to us is to write on our hearts these commandments of God. So that now the covenant is kept not because we got rules to obey, but it's kept because we love Him. And we want to do this. I want to please Him. I don't want any other God before Him. Well, praise God. I don't want to steal. I don't want to lie. I don't want to kill. Well... God writes His law in our heart through the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. That's what the new covenant is all about. That's why the Spirit of God came. is to write His law in your hearts. Why well, I can't understand these people who claim to have the Holy Ghost but think, doesn't matter how I live, doesn't matter how I look, doesn't matter how I act. Well, then why did you receive the Holy Ghost? Why did you need it? 
If you can live any way you want to live, why do you need the Holy Ghost? If God doesn't care what you do, what you say, how you look, if God doesn't care about any of that, why did, why did you have to have the Holy Ghost? What's the purpose? You were doing just fine at that without the Holy Ghost. But you know why we need it? Because we've got to change all of that. And the things that we once loved, we've got to learn to hate. And the things that we once hated, we've got to learn to love. There's got to be a transformation in us. And we can't bring that about through resolutions and new leaves. That's got to happen by the power of the Spirit. Well, praise God. All right, I, I got I to I gotta quit. Come and start trying to remind me. I got to quit. Um, it is interesting that Jesus likens this birth of the Spirit to a wind. John chapter 3 and verse 8. This will be the last verse we use for today. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is, so everyone, is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. Jesus is giving us a parallel between the Spirit and the wind. Right. And that's, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm not going to go into the whole uh, thing here. We, we've talked about, uh, here's the sound thereof. It's the only real certainty that's in this verse. Every time the wind blows, you hear the sound of the wind. And every time someone's born of the Spirit, you'll hear the sound that they're born we started out this, this whole lesson uh, talking about the newborn and you're waiting to hear the sound of that baby cry. That's the sign that there's a living birth when there's a sound. The sign of a living spiritual birth, there'll be a sound. And really this word sound is phone. It, it means a voice or a language. So you hear the language when someone's born of the Spirit, but again, that's another lesson for another day. But I just want to point out that Jesus likens the spirit to wind. And in fact, it, 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 when you look at it in the, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew ruach, ruach is, is wind or spirit, either one, same word. In the Greek, pneuma. Now, now, now look, we, we've got... We've got to understand that there is a close connection between wind and spirit. And here's what we've got to understand. We as Kansans, we know a little bit about the wind out here. Maybe I should say Midwesterners because a lot of Missourians know too. But we understand about the wind. And we know that the wind can blow, and it can blow things away. Right? I, one day, my, my wife and I had gone to Krispy Kreme Donuts and uh, had bought a dozen donuts. I don't remember what we were doing with them. I don't remember where we were going, but I had this, this, this dozen donuts in my hand, and, and I was trying to get to my car, and this gust of wind came, and it just caught that box, and they just flew, and I lost all of them. <clears throat> oh, the heartbreak. Oh, the grief. 
fresh, hot, crispy cream. guess I should have done like I did one time. I, I was at a Krispy Kreme with a preacher friend and his wife. And we were sitting close to the counter there. And we'd gotten a dozen. And we, the four of us had eaten that dozen of donuts. And, and I, I had a drink and I'd finished my drink off. And so I just went over to the counter with my empty cup. And, and I said, um, do you do free refills? They said, yes, we do. I said, okay. I grabbed that box. I said, here, refill this, would you? <laughs> Um, they didn't refill that, but anyhow, I mean, they would have for a cost, I guess, but uh, not for free. But anyhow, I, I digress. Um, there is a connection between the wind. The wind can just blow things away. And I'm telling you, that's what needs to happen in our life. There's a lot of chaff. There's a lot of things in our life that we just don't need. And what we do need is a fresh wind of the Spirit to come along. I mean, isn't it interesting that on the day of Pentecost, they heard a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. This wind blew through that You know, the Bible talks about them going into an upper room. But, but that verse doesn't just say it filled the upper room, but it filled the whole house. I'm telling you that this new birth is a spiritual wind. It is, if you please, a fresh baptism of the presence of God. It was the moving of the Spirit in the beginning of creation that brought order out of void. And ended up in the result of that first birth. That first natural, it was a creation, it wasn't a birth, but the first man was in a sense born. By the moving of the Spirit upon the water. And that's what's got to happen in our own lives. Is going through that same process. And it resulting in this time not a natural man, but a spiritual one. Let's stand and lift our hands to the Lord right now. Let's talk to him together, everybody.